0: Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece Podcast. On this episode, we're going to be diving into episodes 352 through 354, which will cover manga chapters 458 through 459. Only two chapters, but there's quite a bit in these episodes, so yeah, I have been waiting to talk about these episodes for a very long time. We finally get to the reveal of what compels Brook to fight so hard, and it is incredible. So yeah, synopsis, Moria armed with Luffy's shadow, the 900th zombie oars is finally awakened. Meanwhile, the Straw Hats regrouped on the Sunny to finally learn about Brooke's shocking true motivation and promise for wanting to get his shadow back. Filled with the new sense of purpose, the Straw Hats reforge themselves to take back what's theirs. So, differences in these episodes... So in the beginning with with uh, Orz being awakened and you know his luffy personality shining through, he wants a whole bunch of food. However in the in the manga he does get fed food from their stock stock of food. However, in the anime there's this whole bit where they run out of food and they start feeding him from the food that they stole off the sunny and kind of uh, him avoiding eating the salted elephant tuna that is all added as filler in the anime. Next, the scene where Nami gets fitted for her wedding dress is mostly filler. As in the manga, it actually just stops just after the tailor pulls out the tape measure and everything. And then, yeah, after that is anime only. And this scene also takes place before they return to the Sunny. However, in the anime, it takes place after the trio awaken. And by trio, I'm talking about Luffy, Zoro, and Sanji. And the anime makes this scene... So much grosser than it really needs to be as, yeah, I, you can't really blame Oda for this one because the anime just takes it way further than it does in the anime. It's just really, yeah, it's unnecessarily like rapey again. And then, lastly, this is pretty obvious, but we get to see flashbacks from episodes 62 and 63 to kind of reintroduce us and remind the audience of Laboon's meeting with the Straw Hats from a long time ago. And pretty much the entirety of episode 354, minus like the last five minutes, give or take, is filler. All right, so with the differences out of the way, let's get into these episodes. So yeah, almost the entire first half of episode 352 is literally just devoted to watching Oars slash Luffy's shadow eating. It's a pretty funny scene because you can just see how strong of a personality and will Luffy has, as it is completely behaving like Luffy to the point where it's got its own dreams and goals instead of just being completely subjugated by Moria's powers. And I think my favorite part about this initial scene is that he still uses Gomu Gomu no pistol to break through the freezer. And his little remark how he thought his arms would stretch and then he declares he's gonna be the pirate king even though he doesn't really know what that even means <laughs> and yeah the, the whole thing with luffy being or is this like terrifying intimidating like devil-like beast but with like still with luffy's sort of happy-go-lucky positive <laughs> attitude is pretty funny we then finally get to see more of what happened to brook when he initially tried to get his shadow back as well as how He came to learn the zombie's true weakness of salt. And it's pretty funny. At least the part where he learns of the weakness. Right when the scene is set up, I already knew exactly where the joke was going where the zombie mentions one of them ate the salted grilled fish and that Brooke would probably immediately take the fish part to heart. But what caught me off guard was how he just uses this information to waltz right back into Hogback's uh, lab all confident and threaten him with (laughs) by throwing fish all over the island (laughs) and for some reason i just imagine brook running around with a sack full of fish tossing them out left and right to the zombies (laughs) then hogback's confused reaction of what is that gonna do also cracks me up every time and i love how once he figures out the salt weakness the zombies are actually terrified of brook in a reversal with his ominous humming being like a traditional horror or horror movie and also if you pay attention to the voice of the main zombie pleading with Absalom to do something about Brooke, that's the same voice, Keichi uh, Sonobe, which is the zombie of the old gravely injured man that they ran into earlier, which means that this is the zombie that his shadow was put into. One thing I really love about the first meeting between Duma and Brooke is how Oda writes in terms of keeping our interest because He is the master of setup in his writing. Obviously, this sets up a redemption slash revenge arc for Brook to rematch Yuma, but it also builds an emotional investment in Brook when it comes to his afro and what it means to him. We already know that in One Piece, for some reason, afros are special, but to Brook, it's his identity. Otherwise, he looks no different from any other skeleton, but it seems there's an even greater importance to that. And there's also something else that I want to point out using this fight as an example. Now, One Piece often gets criticized as having bland or lackluster fights compared to many other shonen series like Dragon Ball, Naruto, Bleach, or even newer series like Attack on Titan and and such for, you know. But for One Piece, it's not about the fights themselves or how they're presented. Sure, the fights can be cool, and they are, but... Really, One Piece rarely, if ever, have fights just for show. Oda always makes sure to include the fights that are in service of the characters or the stories. And this short flashback fight is a good example of this because the fight itself is pretty bland. But really, this is where we really get to see the seeds of what Brooke is all about and what's important to him. Which is why this scene, despite the fight itself being pretty below average, I mean, if we're really talking seriously... We're still incredibly interested and invested because we want to learn why that Afro is so important to him. And that reason, as we're about to learn in the next episode, is fucking amazing. But before that, the remaining crew make their way back to the Sunny to find the monster trio laid out in humiliating fashion after their shadows were stolen. And they were dumped back on the Sunny after unsuccessful attempts at waking the trio Usopp takes a very unique approach to leading another one of One Piece's iconic jokes and moments. Usopp shouts out an amalgamation of something all three of them wouldn't be able to resist. And that's the, there's a hot Master swordswoman with meat. (laughs) And the fact that Usopp knows all three of them so well that this particular set of words would revive them is freaking genius and hilarious. One thing I, n- that I never really picked up on is the fact that, yes, the Straw Hats, like the pig zombie said, they weren't taking this situation seriously enough and let their guard down. As Zoro, upon regaining consciousness, laments the fact that he was careless to have let this happen. But this also goes to show just how much internal responsibility Zoro, Zoro shoulders on himself to be the protector of the crew. And that's something... I've kind of mentioned in the past, but I kind of want to take a little bit of time to actually talk about this. He believes that it is his sole duty to keep the crew and his captain safe, and he failed at this by letting his guard down. And this is a very subtle detail from a tiny piece of dialogue, but a very important one that informs us just how Zoro sees himself and his role in the crew. And this will come to play a much bigger role later on in this arc towards the end. And, you know, it's I can't believe I never really noticed this, but Oda is so good at laying down small pieces of character development without being very explicit about it. You know, there's never a scene where Zoro or somebody else goes like, oh, Zoro's like the protector of the crew, or Zoro like just blatantly mentions that he or he wants to be. It's more so represented in... Subtle dialogue as well as his actions and reactions to, to certain situations and people. And yeah, you know, that, that character development you know, often goes unnoticed. But when added up, all those little things become a huge part of his character's development. And of course, there's a fun joke thrown in, in where juxtaposed from Zoro's real lament to Luffy's over-the-top reaction to only having cheese and crackers to eat is pretty funny as well. Another thing that I also really love about this particular scene is looking back at Usop and Chopper's terrified reaction to learning Moria is a Shichibukai. This may or may not be a little bit spoilery, but it's interesting to me how I view the Shichibukai as a person who's seen sort of the vastness of what the rest of the Grand Line has to offer in the New World. And it just puts the Shichibukai into different perspective for me. So it's it's fun to kind of go back and see this reaction of the shibukai where they are still literally the top dog in terms of like threat level at least this at this point in the series i'm just gonna skip all the rapey gross stuff with nami and get to the moment i've been wanting to talk about for a very long time as this is one of my all-time favorite reveals and moments in the entire series maybe even in most fiction like This is definitely on par with something that's like hit me pretty hard. So I will never forget how this made me feel when I first initially read it and subsequently when I saw this for the first time in the anime as well when it aired. These are the moments that make One Piece stand out because of how amazing it is at long and short form storytelling. So we finally get to hear the continuation of what Frankie had asked Brooke on the bridge and it changed his entire view on Brooke to the point where I like that even though he's being serious, Frankie throws Brooke a bone and includes his own bone wordplay like, you know. So yeah, also like I just did there. That was a bad joke. I should probably cut that later. Uh, anyways, Frankie, having lived through some harsh times himself as an outcast, gets right down to it and asks Brooke pretty bluntly why he even wants to return to civilization. He's just going to be ostracized and feared by people unable you know, being unable to live a decent life because of, well, he looks terrifying as a living zombie or a living skeleton. And I really like this scene because it tells us so much about all three characters in this scene very quickly, too. I, re- I even really like how even Robin, who's usually very frank and blunt herself, even thinks what Frankie is saying is a little too harsh and insensitive, showing us that either Robin has become much softer since Enia lobby. Or what I believe deep down, Robin has always been a very kind person who's finally able to let that part of herself out a little bit more. And I just really like that little touch and kind of had to mention that. I also love that Frankie basically sees right through Brooke. And while I talked about this when Brooke was first introduced, but Frankie is right in that Brooke has lived through something so unimaginably painful and lonely That it's a wonder he hasn't killed himself yet in order to, you know, and in order to continue living on, he basically parades around with this sort of exaggerated and sometimes crazy gentlemanly persona to preserve his sanity and humanity just so he can continue to keep a certain promise is nothing short of incredible. And here is where the amazing part of this entire scene comes. Almost as soon as Brooke launches into his explanation, my entire body is filled with goosebumps and a shiver down my back. And I start to mutter, no way. I honestly will never forget how reading this part made me feel all those years ago. I mean, it's been close to 16 years and I still can't forget it. When he talks about a certain crewmate he left behind 50 years ago, and if you've been paying attention This should immediately perk your ears up because it is very similar to a story we heard about seven years prior, at least at that point in real time. There's a really powerful line reading from Cho who plays Brooke when Frankie tells him that after 50 years, there's no way this crewmate would still be weighing. And the way that Brooke kind of takes offense, but also it feels like he's trying to convince himself at the same time, he begins to yell out, what right and then kind of tails off as if to compose himself again. But just that small break in his composure is enough to tell you or tell us how much this means to him. This is a nice detail you get only in the anime due to the actors and the the writers and their amazing work because this is another one of those moments where the anime is actually superior to the manga and it's so amazingly handled in the anime because you you don't get that in the manga like the word bubble doesn't even really accentuate that it's literally just one straight line read if you read it in the manga at least in the japanese one um but yeah you get that extra emphasis uh with with Cho's reading of that line as he plays Brooke but yeah that line of what right do I have to decide whether or not he's still waiting sums it up right there why Brooke's conviction has not wavered To him, the belief in his nakama is just as strong as the Straw Hats have for each other. And he has faith that they're still waiting for him after 50 years. And I think that's also, yeah, it's wishful thinking, but also it's something that he needs to hold on to. And, you know, if he didn't have that, yeah, he probably would have ended his life. And so having that belief is not only important to preserve for the, the nakama that he's waiting or that's waiting for him but also for his own sake as well he needs that to still be the case or else he has no reason to live brooks next few lines about how they must feel waiting all this time how lonely and betrayed they must feel hits even harder once you know who he's talking about i mean seriously go back and watch this scene over again now that you know who it is he's talking about and it becomes even more heartbreaking and powerful. And yeah, so on to the identity of this crew member. He then drops a nuke-sized bomb on us all and says the name Laboon. I mean, most of his fans already knew he was talking about Laboon. And, but the way Oda slowly builds up to it is just insanely great writing. Especially that final clue that he left him at some capes. And they immediately remind us about the twin capes. And after he says that, by that point, most fans of the series would know. And it's ah so good. The nakama that Brooke left behind and is hoping to reunite with is freaking Laboon. That is just absolutely crazy. And I'll be honest, I never even considered that we'd actually get to meet one of Laboon's crew. I mean, it was all but certain that they all died. I mean Crocus even said as much and and 50 years is such a long time even if they were alive they'd probably be so old you know they wouldn't be able to do anything and I remember before this moment I had just thought that Laboon's story would play out that Luffy would find some evidence of what happened to that crew and maybe bring a letter or a memento of them back but Oda has once again just blew all of our collective minds out of the water with an amazing piece of storytelling by not only having one of the crew still alive, but weaving their backstory, motivation, and dream into becoming a Straw Hat crew member is nothing short of godly, in my opinion. I mean, it's so crazy good. And I seriously can't overstate how much I love this reveal. It's so perfect. Like, this moment just gets better and better with the anguish and frustration that Brooke has in his voice about how they made a selfish promise and ended up dying where they could no longer reach him with just an I'm sorry we died would just never cut it while also emphatically declaring that once a promise is made it's a man's duty to keep that promise it's it's incredible and how visually like shook both Frankie and Robin are just adds to the intensity of this scene Now cut back to the present and we get the reaction we've all been waiting for from the others who know. Because it was obviously intentional to have this story told to two of the three crew members that weren't there when they met Laboon, but Usopp, Sanji, Zoro, and Luffy obviously still do. And it's just so freaking heartwarming. And by this point, I tear up every time when everything comes together like this because they know Laboon is still waiting. Laboon is still waiting for Brooke to return faithfully as ever. And as we get a flashback to the episodes of Laboon at the, the Twin Capes of the promise that Luffy made with Laboon himself, but the thought that not only will Luffy return to fulfill his promise that he made to Laboon, he's going to have one hell of a surprise when he's got Brooke in toll as well. And I straight up ball every time I read or watch this. Like, how can you not get emotional at this twist? This has been building for seven years in real time, if you read it, uh, you know, as it was progressing. But this is another instance where I feel like, yeah, you do lose a little something by binge watching because you don't get that long stretch of time of not thinking about it. Then it kicks you in the feels with a ton of bricks out of nowhere because You just sort of set it out of your mind. It also still boggles my mind how Oda made us feel this much emotion when it comes to build, you know, a building-sized whale twice. And, you know, likely a third time when the series concludes and they all get to have their reunion, it's going to be on another level like nothing else. But yeah, now episode 354 is majority spent on reminding the audience about the story of Laboon. And it's mostly just filled with scenes from episode 62 and 63. But there are still some awesome moments laced throughout this episode. As they all remember Laboon. And I like that <laughs> that they threw in a reference to one of my favorite gags. The don't, don't, don't gag with Grok, Cuss, and Zoro uh, and Sanji getting pissed off at him. But anyways, after all the flashbacks, we get to see a bit of Brook struggling against Yuma. And with the added context of why Brook values his afro so much... It makes this fight much more intense because to Brooke, this is the only way Laboon could recognize him. And because Brooke can't grow anything back, each piece of damage he takes feels that much more painful and intense to us, the viewer slash reader, because he can't grow anything back. Like, and when you see him, like, take a shot to his eye and you see his skull kind of crack, it's like, oh no, like, what... you know he's going to continue to take damage like is he ever going to be able to recover of course now now with that knowledge not only is luffy supercharged to get brook as a nakama but now everyone is completely on board having brook join the crew in an amazing reversal from the initial uh you know opposition to him joining when when the arc started and yeah i love that it's such an amazing culmination of all those things, like he, even the setup where most of the crew were vehemently opposed to having Brooke join the crew. Now everybody absolutely wants him. And and I love seeing all those little threads just come together like that and pay off. And the cherry on top is the usually cautious Zoro is the first one off the ship ready to help Brooke and take everything back. Which is an awesome callback to how before Zoro had to be convinced to go into Thriller Bark. But now he's leading the charge. And I love how these sort of storytelling elements come together so freaking well just to get you right in the feels and pumped for Act 3 of Thriller Bark. I think it just, the whole thing with Zoro just kind of adds like a an extra dimension to him because you realize he's not just like this sort of like stoic badass meathead. He actually is a softie underneath. Like that story obviously got him emotional enough to want to get his ass off the boat and help Brook as soon as possible. And I'm sure the excitement of taking on a legendary samurai also has something to do with it as well. But it's just really cool to see that Zoro is the first one off the boat. One other last little side note that I wanted to mention about this whole part is how Luffy actually refers to Brook by his real name instead of some nickname like Skeleton Guy or something like that. How he usually does with random people he meets. And I know this isn't something new, but by now there's sort of a pattern that you begin to see that Luffy will refer to people by their real names to indicate that he has let them kind of into his sort of inner circle. And it's not exclusive to potential crew members either. It doesn't have to do with respect or liking necessarily because there are plenty of people he likes and respects that he still refers to by nicknames like Genzo as he refers to him as the the pinwheel guy, Igaram with the Chikua uh, man. And then Gunfall is like the Sky Knight and Iceberg, you know, Ice no Sang or Ice Old Man. But then there are people he gets one step closer to in terms of relationships. Like with Kobe, like he always called Kobe by his real name. Johnny and Yosak and Baratier, and Arlong Park as well as in and, and Skypia, Like these people for, you know, this group, Luffy for some reason gains an extra level of attachment to and actually calls these people by their real names. And it's always fun and interesting to see who Luffy chooses to refer by their real names as well as those who he decides to call them by basically their nicknames. But yeah, that brings to a close to one of my absolute favorite moments in One Piece. What can I say? This blew my socks off. And I can't wait to get into the climax of Thriller Bark because there is still so much to love about this arc as we get into the action part of Thriller Bark. But anyways, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at SunnyGoPodcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes and to see some pictures of my manga collection. I've also been streaming on Twitch semi regularly. If you want to come chat or watch me play games, I'd be happy to see you at slash sunny underscore underscore go. That's sunny two underscores and go. As always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to listen to my podcast. I just have a very, very tiny thing I wanted to mention in the spoiler section. It's not even really worth it, but. Um, if you're not interested in that, stay safe out there and I hope to see you in the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, so spoiler section. So really the only thing I wanted to mention, and this is, it doesn't even really warrant a spoiler section, but I just had to mention it. Is the fact that later on in the series in Dress Rosa, we actually do see another one of Usopp's lies come to fruition in the lie that he told to get the monster trio awake about the beautiful master swordswoman with meat. And this would actually kind of become true in the form of Rebecca in Dress Rosa. She is a very beautiful female swordswoman who offers Luffy a meal. <laughs> and it's kind of crazy. Like, I don't know if that was actually intentional, but it, it's it's funny in the sense that this turns out to be a real thing. And just another one of Usopp's like crazy lies that somehow magically turns out to be true. And yeah, that's, that's really the only thing I wanted to mention in the spoiler section. I'm sure I'll talk about this again when we do get to dress Rosa as well. But I just had to mention it here, because uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite Usopp lies that's come true. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope to see you on the next one. See ya.